In the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author goes to great lengths to proclaim the mind blowing, and I wish I could come up with a more um, fitting phrase, but, but words like awesome, mind blowing, almost indescribable, you know, should come to mind when we read what he says at the beginning of Hebrews. Because he presents something that is mind blowing, that is awesome, that is infinitely majestic and impossible for us to fully grasp. He says this, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Is Cameron here right now? Okay, pardon? He is in CM? Okay, Cameron was supposed to pray for our message this morning. <laughs> so I will, I will do it by remote for Cameron. Lord, open our eyes to Jesus Christ this morning and to our need to continually keep our eyes fixed on him. Please have mercy on me and bless the teaching and preaching of your word to your people. Where, Lord, these different things we'll talk about are needed to fall into the different places that each of us are in in our lives. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, put those puzzle pieces right in place? Where certain things I might say are just not what you want to speak to your people in their individual place this morning, not what you want them mostly affected by, let the puzzle piece fit a different place. Someone else, let that puzzle piece not try to force itself in its way. Lord, I'm asking you to speak to each individual heart here, even as you love us together as one people. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The author of Hebrews is trying to tell us something. So profound. That, that God has been speaking to us. That he has been throughout history. Trying to reach us again and again. There's a, a song that I grew up with in the 80s. Uh, some of you guys who are old might remember it, or maybe if you like classic rock. It's by someone named Joan Osborne, and it's, the song title is What If God Was One of Us. Does anybody remember that song? 
What if God was one of us? Pretty, pretty song, very, uh, you know, at least semi-substantive lyric. Um, But it kind of creates this sense that we're just alone floating. And God, if he's there, gosh, wouldn't it be great if he tried to reach us? Wouldn't it be great if he tried to speak and and it's, it's so interesting, you know, wouldn't it be great if he even became one of us? And I remember hearing that song and just thinking like, is she intentionally <laughs> like acting as if Christianity isn't even in the game? Like it's not even on the table of ideas of the last 2000 years. Like where has Joan Osborne been? And, and you know, it, it's almost like I, I step into this author, you know, saying to us simply like, people, God has been speaking. He has been speaking. Are you listening? Are you listening? He has sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet for thousands of years. He has made sure that those voices have been protected and shrined for thousands of years in his holy word. And then after all of that, He's done sending representatives and he sends himself in the person of his son. And it's so important, it's so ultimate that the author says it's the last thing he's saying in a sense. He says in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. He's not talking about we've got three weeks left before the the rapture. He's saying God has said the greatest, most ultimate, biggest thing he can possibly say. He's not going to say something bigger than this. It's the final cry out. It's the final call. We might wait another 2,000 years before Jesus comes back. There's not going to be a next, more bigger revelation than what God has said. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he made heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, this son, is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the light of God the Father. When you walk outside, the sun's up in the sky, but everything that hits you is an exact projection and outflow of that sun. And God is saying that's what Jesus is. Everything I am, he projects it to you. If you want to know who God is, if you wish he'd become one of us and rode on a bus like us or look at Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And then the author pinpoints the most important thing that this projection of the exact nature of God to us has done. He has made purification of sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Jesus Christ is God's ultimate and final word to mankind. There's nothing greater he could say. There's nothing more he could do to reveal himself to us. He is God's glory. He is the exact representation of God. He's not like God. He is exactly God. He is God's very son and very God the son. He upholds everything just like God would do every moment by this power. You are being upheld and sustained by Jesus Christ. And he has, through his own shed blood on the cross, made atonement for the sins of any who will acknowledge him as Savior and call him Lord. And then, after saying all this and elaborating on it more in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews starts chapter 2 with a grave concern. His concern is that we wouldn't pay any attention to this. That we would go around with our lives writing songs like Joan Osborne. And sorry, I didn't mean to point to you guys. You just, I just had some nods from the back row about Joan Osborne's songs, you know, as if she's back there. One of the parables in Luke is so, like, strange to me. Jesus tells the story of, of the kingdom of heaven being like a man who throws a great feast, a huge banquet, and he goes into the streets and he invites all of his friends and all the, the, the people who, in the vernacular of the day, we might think of all the cool people, like all the people who have it together, and nobody wants to come. They say, I'm too busy, I'm helping my dad, I'm raising my kids, I got, got to fix the gutters. They don't want to come. And so he says, well, okay, well, I, I, I'm having a party. So he goes and he goes in to the places of destitution where the poor are and where the lame and where the sick are. And they're humble enough, they're desperate enough to take him. So he, he throws a party. But, but most of the people are content to just get by without the party and without the king and without his feast. It's not relevant to them. And that's the concern that the author of Hebrews says. He says, I'm really concerned that through neglect and lack of paying attention, you're, you're going to miss this. You're just going to shrivel up and your faith is going to die. And it's striking how the author conceives of this concern. He's not concerned in, in Hebrews 2 of, of this sudden and violent rejection of Jesus. Like one moment you're caught up in the morning in, in rapturous praise on a Sunday and by the afternoon you know, you're joining the militant atheist club. He knows life doesn't work that way. It's not a concern even like we might have had like King David like warning against a massive moral collapse. Like everything's going fine. And then one night you're like King David, you're on the roof, you see Bathsheba, you want her, so you take her in adultery, you murder her husband. He, he's not talking about that. He knows that kind of fall is, is, is really often the cumulative effect of something else. So his concern is about something much more subtle and harder to be alarmed about. But for that reason, it's really worth considering. 
And it's laid out here in the first two verses of Hebrew 2. So I'm going to read that. He says, after painting this incredible picture of Jesus, the ultimate, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message was declared, the message declared by angels, and he's talking about the old covenant law, and I, I can't go into all of that, but there was, a, there was an angelic mediation between God and Moses that's being referenced here, where the law was mediated through helpers of God to Moses. And he's referencing the old covenant being given to Moses. He says, since that message, the old covenant message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or, or disobedience received a, a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? After it was at first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, Jesus came. He told us who he was. He called for us to follow him and trust in him. It was confirmed by those apostles who heard. They did miraculous works. They laid down their lives as martyrs attesting to the fact that Jesus had indeed died and risen from the grave. And it's even been attested by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You yourselves in your own community have seen lives changed through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's a manifold witness that this is true. And so he says, pay attention lest you drift. His concern might be called Spiritual death by drift. Not a violent sudden end, but just by drift. Drifting. I was born in Buffalo, New York, which sits on Lake Erie. My home had a view of the bridge that connected Lake Erie to the Niagara River called the Peace Bridge. And and the Niagara River led to the Niagara Falls. It was just 20 minutes away from my house to go from Lake Erie and that connecting bridge to the most, you know, one of the wonders of the world. And Niagara Falls was frequently a, a subject of great uh, concern. Falling over the falls was uh, urban legend among us. It, there were, there were stories of folks whose damaged boats were trapped on the rock. And as if I remember correctly, there is a barge there that's laid up against, it's old and rotting, but it's laid up against a series of rocks. And it was famous in my family. We'd drive by. Everybody wanted to look at that barge because the story had been that two people had been stuck in there through the night, just, just hanging by a thread on some rocks right above the falls. And when the rescuers got there the next day, they found these, you know, 30-year-old uh, sailors and their hair was stuck dark white because over the night, just looking at the falls waiting, they had lost all the uh, filament in their hair and now it had turned completely white. It, there was no truth to that story, by the way. It did not happen that way. But it was really fun to think about, you know, as, as you saw that boat. But the, even though the hair didn't turn right white, the danger of the falls was real. Between 1850 and 2011, 5,000 bodies 
have been found at the bottom of the falls. I don't think they stopped counting. That was just the last anybody reported it. 5,000 people between 850 and 2011. Still to this day, like 20 to 30 people a year die by Niagara Falls somehow. That, that's the report I have online. And some of these folks, it's tragic, are suicides. It's a popular place to take your life. Uh, to put it not with enough care, but it is. But some are victims of boating accidents, even attempts to do adventure work. And, and um, some are just tragic falls. They're taking pictures and they fall over a ledge near the falls and fall into the river. So my hometown was at that juncture between the lake and the falls. And at first, Lake Erie flow slowly into the falls, but as you can imagine, the further you go up from the lake through the river, the harder it is to stop the drift. And at some point, you just can't stop it anymore. In fact, the whole river is really dangerous due to awful currents. It's a beautiful river. There's all kinds of houses lining that river. It's a straight river. It's like, it's just gorgeous scenery and it goes for miles but it's really dangerous. It's really dangerous and the police do not want anybody swimming in the Niagara River. The, the, the point is, if you're on that river, you need to be doing something wise. You need to be doing something intentional and purposeful and careful. You can't just drift along. You can't just drift along and hope everything will be fine because it won't be. The river, it won't let it be fine. Drifting is the last thing that you want to be doing. So the author of Hebrews tells us that if we think we can drift in the Christian life, that, that we can, through lack of paying careful attention to Jesus Christ, that we that we'll be fine, that we can let the waters of this world just carry us along. He says, you're a fool. You, you can't. You can't. The waters are too dangerous. Our faith will die. And if we let ourselves drift, if we don't take care of our relationship with Christ and pay attention to him and this great salvation, he says, we may find that we no longer believe in him, that, that our hearts no longer find him the way he wants to be found by us. And our lives no longer truly follow him. And it can all come not with this sudden explosion of apostasy from spiritual high to that night spiritual low, but this slow drift, neglect, neglect over time. We simply, he says, stop paying close attention to Jesus and we let the currents of this life take us downstream. So why? Why do we drift though? Like, how does it happen? It's, it's good to think about this. Why do we drift and why is it so easy to drift? Well, broadly speaking, scripture offers us three categories for currents that pull us away. And m many of you are probably familiar with the categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And first, let's consider a little bit of the way that the world, this present world, helps us drift. And I want you to consider a way that it helps us drift that you may not think about very often, but it's inescapable. 
And I, I call it today anyway, I call it the message of the irrelevancy of God. The ubiquitous, ever being sent message of the irrelevancy of God. Most of us, unless we're engaging like religious issues on purpose because it's our job like me or we're on social media, we're always arguing about these things. Most of us don't go to a workplace or a school or play on a sports team, etc. that is explicitly proclaiming the falseness of the gospel and the non-existence of God. We don't walk into Starbucks and, hey, could I get a half-calf macchiato? Sure, God is dead. I'll be right back with your order. <laughs> That's just not how we live. But that doesn't mean that the world isn't speaking to us about God all the time. R.C. Sproul said one of the most insightful things I've ever heard about secular education, and I'm not trying to knock secular education. We have teachers in this room who are so needed. We have, um, my wife was a teacher for 10 years. Our kids are in secular education. But, but he said this, that I think it's just so astute and on point. He said, there's no such thing as a neutral education. Every education, every curriculum has a viewpoint. And that viewpoint either considers God in it or it does not. To teach children about life and the world in which they live without reference to God is to make a statement about God. It screams a statement. The message is either that there is no God or that God is irrelevant. Either way, the message is the same. There is no God. An irrelevant God is the same as no God at all. If, if God is, then he must be relevant to his entire creation. Sproul was talking about education, but, but his truth speaks to all aspects of secular culture. Whether it be your child's high school or your favorite politician speech typically or your favorite TV shows or movies or your favorite news analyst or your favorite musician's lyrics or your favorite sports team, God is rarely, if ever, positively at the center. And that doesn't mean that you can't engage in all these things in proper balance and enjoy a lot of beautiful art and music and political analysis that's astute and thoughtful and that God can't work good through it. But, but Sproul is right to teach about life and the world in which we live without reference to God is to make a statement about God. It's subtle, it's slow, but it has an accumulative effect. In all kinds of ways, the world is usually whispering through all these things, God isn't relevant. And, but lots of things are. Like what the world does say is relevant in concert with our flesh and the devil is to get us to focus on a world without God and to get us to perseverate and orient ourselves and be consumed with the anxieties, the worries, the fears, and the pleasures of this world without any reference to God. The, the world asks us to be oriented around the money we should have the better job we could have. Oh, <laughs> the relationship or the marriage we don't have. Oh, the poor health we might have if we're not careful. The perfect children we can't have, but we wish we did because 
us and them are, you know, the college degree, we, we must have the physical or mental suffering we do have. The house, the car, the retirement we wish we did have. And it's not that these things are of no concern. They're all of some concern. And our suffering especially is of special concern to God and engenders his compassion. But without God and his goodness and our relationship and our friendship with him at the center of our hearts, all these things, good and bad, they eventually have to take his place. And so into all this dangerous reality, the author of the Hebrews calls out, don't drift, don't drift away. Pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to the salvation you have. And of all these things that call us to drift, I I feel like I want to mention something in our current cultural moment. Because there is something particular going on right now in the in the air around us as believers. We might call it intentional drifting from Christ. Intentional drifting from Christ. Other terms would be deconstruction. And this intentional drifting from Christ is currently seen by many increasingly as a real noble pursuit of virtue and honesty. This week I read a sad thing. Um, You guys might be aware of this. Joshua Harris, a man who used to preach the gospel to the church that founded our church, is offering a five-week course on, quote, how to reframe your story, which includes a belief system deconstruction starter pack. And it costs $275 for the course so that you can deconstruct, reframe your story. And here's some of the promotive promotive terms. This course gives you a new way to frame your unfolding story. It's not about convincing you of any particular conclusion. It gives you a framework and questions to help you rethink and grow. You don't have to adopt a new label or argue for or justify your change in beliefs. You do deserve the freedom to question, change your thinking, and choose the life that you want. Now, Joshua Harris is talented, and he is intelligent, and he is articulate. And I'm sure the course, I mean, I looked at some of the verbiage on it. I'm sure it has some stimulating content and it perhaps might even help someone question things that they need to question. Some of what we might label as deconstruction isn't always bad. Like growing up in a church that tells you it's okay for men to belittle the mean and mistreat, strike their wives even. Or a church that tells you it's subtly okay to hate homosexuals. Or to deny in subtle ways or more explicit ways equal rights to black men and women. In fact, I I think there's a very healthy kind of deculturization. That's, that's, uh, I think, a different kind of process that's important for us to go through. 
a deculturization where we, we cleanse the gospel of the cultural trappings that aren't part of the gospel, but are optional or harmful. And it's important for believers to work through in times and places throughout history, a deculturalization of the gospel. For Martin Luther in the 1500s, it was pulling the gospel kernel, the corn of the gospel from the rotting husks of Roman Catholic superstition and legalism. For many believers today, it might be separating the corn, the kernel, the healthy food of the gospel from the rotting husks of certain aspects of political baggage that might tempt us to define followers of Jesus by how conservative their stance is on immigration or the environment or racial issues. We don't ever, ever, ever want to equate the gospel with a debatable political position or party. And, and sometimes political positions are also moral positions, sexual ethics, reproductive rights. When the lives of the unborn are in discussion or people are violating God's holy call for our sexual design. We're not talking about that. But, but, but I believe anybody who looks hard enough at our political culture and our political parties would have to see that Jesus would find a great deal to mourn over in, in both the Democratic and the Republican parties. So we don't ever want to equate the gospel with debatable political positions or personalities. I don't want Jesus Christ and Rush Limbaugh being the same thing to people I'm trying to witness to in my family. That's a horrible thing to think about. And I don't, I'm not even trying to judge Rush Limbaugh. I'm just saying he's not speaking for Jesus Christ. Not any more than AOC speaks for Jesus Christ. But reading the synopsis of the course and knowing something about where Joshua Harris has come from and knowing something about where he has gone by his own words, it's difficult for me not to think another good name for his course would be how to drift away from Jesus Christ. Listen to the description. And I, and I cite this because I think it's representative. It's not because I'm trying to pick on Joshua Harris. I think it's representative of, a, of an air we're breathing in the Christian culture, in the Bible-believing culture right now. Just like the emergent church was about 15 years ago, if you know anything about the emergent church. It's very similar, if not a DNA replicant of the emergent church theme. But, but listen to this, the descriptions given here. There's no particular conclusions needed. You frame your own story. You don't need to justify your change in beliefs to anyone. You deserve the freedom to choose the life you want. Those are the words. But folks, this is the familiar voice that we've been hearing for like a long time. Do you remember what happened in the garden? What did Satan say to Eve? 
did God really say? Did God really command you this? Are those words really true? You won't die. You'll be fine. He knows that you'll be like God. It's a good thing for you. It's as old as the garden. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, so I, I, I want to be careful here. Again, please hear me out. I'm also not talking about honestly and sometimes painfully wrestling with real doubts before the Lord. Jesus wants us to do that. The Bible's full of his people battling with doubt, asking him hard questions. Why are you even here? Have you forgotten me forever? Why have you left me in this situation? Why aren't you doing something about Haiti and about Kabul? Why do we have to wait so long? These are the words of the Psalms. I've struggled tremendously in my life with questions about the existence of God, the validity of Jesus Christ. Why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? And for many of us, if not most of us, those seasons are crucial seasons that we need to struggle through in order to grow. I'm not talking about that. My concern is that you be on your guard for those who invite you with a gentle voice to disavow not just optional, extra biblical baggage, like the politics that can be harmful add-ons to Christianity, but they invite you to disavow Christ himself, his holy words. And with a gentle pat on the back and a smile, they say to you, it's okay, it'll be fine. You deserve to choose the life you want. No particular conclusion needed. That a boy, just live free. Into that comfortable, nice sounding echo across our culture, Jesus Christ says something really different. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find his true self. He doesn't primarily blame our unbelief on our cultural confusions. He says, if anyone wants to really do the will of my father, if anyone really wants to follow God, he will know whether my teaching is from myself alone or from God. On the night before Jesus was crucified, the disciple we call Doubting Thomas was lost in his head and confused about the truth. And he asked a question that many who might take the course I mentioned above might ask. He says to Jesus, how can we know the way? How can we know the way? What's the way? How do we, what's the right way? And Jesus 
says something different than no conclusions particularly necessary. Frame your own story. No, he claims to be the only story. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And a few moments later, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And going back to our passage in Hebrews this morning, the author tells us the same thing in a different way. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says, see how God indeed brought punishment to Israel when they rejected his previous covenant in Moses. And then he says, how much more punishment will those who reject the covenant of Christ, who hear and learn and know the covenant of Christ that God gave to us in his own blood and then reject it. He says, look back at God in the Old Testament. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution How shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect such a much greater revelation of God and his salvation? In other words, if the first covenant that God gave to Israel, which was far, far inferior to the covenant he's given us of Christ, if that had grave consequences for those who rejected it, how much more grave will the consequences be for those who knowingly reject God's ultimate overture of love through the death of his son and his own shed blood? Don't do it. Not even by the slow attrition of drift. You won't escape. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is more than a conversion in your 20s or even a sinner's prayer at summer camp. It's a marriage. It's a marriage. to one spouse, to be faithful above all, to one husband. We know in our hearts that any man who says, when he hears the words, until death do you part, when he says, I do, if he then walks away from his wife, whatever he said on that day, I do. He didn't. (laughs) He didn't. Then any believer who first says yes to Jesus and ends up living and essentially say no to Jesus' life, even if only by gentle drifting at first, will not be counted among the bride of Christ. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And to that poor soul, Peter has tragic words. He says, it would have been better for them 
never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Brothers and sisters, we're not facing the Taliban this morning at gunpoint to renounce Christ and give up him to save our lives. But we're facing the temptation to drift by neglect all the time. And we're facing a world that increasingly hates Jesus and hates his people. Not just in soft ways, but increasingly will do so in institutional ways in our country. For some of us, it will cost us jobs to follow Jesus. I really believe that over the next few decades. It will cost us careers, a real career loss to stand for Jesus. I really think that's true. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a psychic, but I think that's the way the wind's blowing. And the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect it. Don't do it. You've been entrusted with much. God's calling you to much because he's given you so much. And so we must not drift. But, but as we come to a close here, I want you to think about what the author of Hebrews says very carefully here, just as he says, because he does something here that's really beautiful and it's really glorious and it's really freeing if we pay attention to it. He provides an answer to neglect and drift that's so different than we might anticipate. He doesn't say, get your act together. Get in line. He doesn't say, fix yourself before God gets here and sees you. He doesn't say, what is your problem? Clean yourself up. Don't you know God is coming? He is going to kill you if you come to him like this. And with everything we've said before, we might feel that way. We might hear it that way. But look closely. Slow down. And think about his words. Pay closer attention. Lest we drift away. Pay close attention to what? How shall we escape if we neglect what? If we neglect such a great salvation. This is where the beauty and the glory and the goodness of our Lord and his heart and this gospel shine here in this passage. Staying with Jesus, not neglecting Jesus, following Jesus, it starts and it is sustained not primarily by our doing and our effort and our work, but by paying close attention to his great salvation. What does it mean to not neglect your great salvation? 
John Piper is so helpful here. He says, it means don't neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven and accepted and protected and strengthened and guided by almighty God. Don't neglect the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross for all of your sins. Don't neglect the free gift of righteousness given to you by faith. Don't neglect the removal of God's wrath and the reconciled smile of God. Don't neglect the indwelling Holy Spirit and the friendship of the living Christ. Don't neglect the radiance of God's glory in the face of Jesus that you can see and he's given you the gift of belief in. Don't neglect the free access you have to the throne of grace for every time of need. Don't neglect the inexhaustible treasures of God's promises that he will be true to. There's an irony in Hebrews all over the place and it's right here in this grave warning. I've often thought that the whole book of Hebrews could be summed up in be full of joy at what God has done for you or be destroyed. (laughs) The irony is in this grave warning in Hebrews. It's a grave warning to pay close attention to and not neglect what is meant to give us joy and hope and comfort. To, To continually saturate yourself not with the message of the law written on tablets of stone, the commandment that kills and cannot give life, but to continually saturate yourself with the hope of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. A hope and a salvation that you cannot create or sustain, but he does. It's to stay so near to the warmth of the fire of God's love that you'd never want to leave him and go out and freeze in the cold of this lost world. But you'd rather invite frozen hearts to be made new in his son because you know the warmth of his love and you know the healing of his friendship and you know the kindness of his lordship and the gentleness of his yoke. To pay close attention to, to not neglect so great a salvation is to remind yourself again and again that you were once a child of wrath. That you were once someone whose heart and life had deeply grieved and offended God. That you were once someone who was under his just judgment for your rejection of him and worthy of damnation. It is to remind yourself again and again that instead of damning you to an eternity of just punishment, He refused to hold your sins against you. But instead, full of compassion for you, he took the initiative while you were still a sinner to reconcile himself to you. It's to remind yourself again that that he did this not through some wink at sin and oh, it's not a big deal, but because it was a big deal, he offered the price of his only son. as the price that must be paid for your sin against his holy honor. 
It's to remind yourself again and again that, that having reconciled you to himself, he now gives you the eternal status of righteous in his courtroom. A permanent status that is as permanent as the worth of his son is permanent because it's a righteousness in his son. It's a righteousness paid for by Jesus himself. It's got the integrity of Jesus' own life in it. If Jesus' own life can change in its worth, then your righteousness can, but it can't. So neither can your status of righteous before God, despite your sin, in spite of your sin. It's to remind yourself that having been justified by his righteousness, by his blood, you're not just invited, you're commanded to come to his throne of grace again and again for mercy, for every repeated failure and every repeated sin and every ongoing weakness and struggle in this life and know that you will be met again and again, whether you feel it or not, but on the vow of God, you will be met with sympathy and compassion and never his judgment. It's to remind yourself again and again that forgiven and righteous it's not all you're now indwelt by Jesus himself, that he comes to live in your heart, that you still imperfect in yourself, you have inside you a savior who has set up camp and a construction site to renew your heart fully and he won't stop until he's finished to free you from every stain of sin and every pain of this world. It's to remind yourself that having condemned Jesus in your place, he doesn't even have a right to condemn you, even if he wanted to. And he doesn't. But instead, he's vowed to never leave you or forsake you. And will one day in the flesh, as he has already in the spirit, come to you to be with you forever in a way that's inconceivable for us. In its glory and power and, and in its healing. This is what it means, brothers and sisters, to not neglect our great salvation, but instead to pay close attention to these things, to not take them for granted, to not think about how great it would be if only God had become one of us. He has. He's been telling us for 2,000 years. And so let's not neglect it. Let's keep it close. Let's seek to live for him by his spirit on that great salvation, not for it. If we seek to do this, if we fight to keep it close, we won't drift. We won't drift. We won't go over the falls. And even this morning, if you feel like you're drifting, he is so patient. That's, if you're drifting, that's why he brought you here this morning, to hear him say to you, don't drift, come back. Throne of grace and mercy, open. Sins, covered. Come, come to me, come back, ask me for my help. I will help you. You can't do it on your own, he knows that. 